Welcome to You Hate Movies, the podcast in which casual moviegoers, film lovers, and cinephiles argue about movies. In this first installment of our three-episode journey into the Jurassic Park franchise, we're taking a deep dive into Jurassic Park and its sequels, what does and doesn't work, and how Jurassic World Dominion fares as the saga's conclusion. Along the way, you will get spoilers for every movie in the Jurassic Park franchise, including Jurassic World Dominion. In the fall of 1989, director Steven Spielberg met with novelist Michael Crichton to discuss Crichton's idea for a TV series based on his own experiences as a medical student amidst the chaos of the emergency room. NBC eventually ordered the series, which became ER. But during that same meeting, all the way back in the fall of 1989, Crichton also mentioned to Spielberg that he had just written a yet-to-be-published novel about an amusement park populated by cloned dinosaurs. Spielberg was enamored with the idea. He went back to Universal Pictures and insisted that the studio purchase the film rights for Crichton's novel, and a bidding war ensued, with both Tim Burton and James Cameron vying for the project. Eventually, Universal acquired the rights at Spielberg's behest in 1990, before Crichton's novel ever hit bookstore shelves. The book was released in November of that same year and became an immediate success, selling 10 million copies before its inevitable film adaptation had ever made its way into the pop culture consciousness. In the spring of 1992, I was nine years old and vacationing with my family in sunny Orlando, Florida. We'd been at the Universal Studios theme park all morning when I wandered past a small merchandising kiosk with a thatch roof made to look like a jungle hut. The kiosk counter was flanked by two small monitors running a teaser trailer for an upcoming film on a continuous loop. The only item being sold at the kiosk was the novel on which the upcoming film was based. I couldn't believe what I saw. I was so distracted by the images that I found myself returning to them constantly throughout the day. My parents witnessed me awestruck, and though they were pretty frugal and rarely bought us souvenirs outside of sanctioned gift-giving occasions, they happily purchased this book. So undeniable was the impression it made on me in an instant. At nine years old, It became the first grown-up novel I ever read. I was infatuated with it. I read it slowly, carefully, not wanting it to end. Then I read it again. In the months that followed, leading up to the summer of 1993, I can scarcely overstate my anticipation for this movie. Everyone who knew me knew this about me. How many days now, Josh, adults would ask, are you going to make it? Then... On June 11, 1993, the day before my 10th birthday, my friends and I piled into my mom's Crown Victoria for a Saturday matinee at Eisenhower Cinemas in Savannah, Georgia. The lights dimmed in the packed theater, and three ominous notes rang out, the third over the two words on the giant silver screen, Jurassic Park. What followed didn't just become a big deal for me personally, it was an all-out cultural phenomenon, the highest-grossing film of all time until it was dethroned by Titanic in 1998. I saw Jurassic Park six times in theaters in 1993. I owned every action figure, every piece of merchandise I could acquire, regardless of any pragmatic purpose it could serve a 10-year-old. My dad, for example, used the coffee mug more than I did. 
I had a full Jurassic Park wardrobe, school supplies, the soundtrack on cassette and CD, models, lunchbox, glasses, bedding, posters. I programmed my VCR to tape every talk show interview, every Entertainment Tonight special, even an entire week of Jurassic Park-themed episodes of Regis and Kathy Lee. I did my fifth grade social science fair project on the way Jurassic Park shaped visual effects in the film industry. And when the VHS finally arrived in October of 1994, yes, it took that long, I kept a paper on my bedroom wall on which I tallied the number of times I had seen the movie, you know, for bragging rights. When the tallies exceeded 26 viewings, I decided the effort was no longer necessary. For me, every moment, Every frame of Jurassic Park is loaded with not just nostalgia, but with a formational history that endures nearly three decades later, a day in June when, for two hours, I truly learned the incredible capacity to enter into another world, disbelief not just suspended, but bypassed altogether to experience the transporting power of a movie. Nostalgia tends to cloud objectivity. We can't help it. There are films I loved as a kid that I now recognize are not incredible feats of filmmaking. For example, Mac and Me or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. And there are formational childhood movies that continue to impress and entertain today, like The Dark Crystal or the first Ninja Turtles movie. It seems as if, by and large, the world has agreed that Jurassic Park belongs to the latter category, quintessential Spielbergian entertainment that continues to wow and thrill, to stimulate the mind and jolt the nerves. But for movie lovers, if you were somewhere to the tune of 10 years old in 1993, Jurassic Park was likely your big movie moment, your Lord of the Rings, your Star Wars. And yet, despite effortlessly maintaining its forever status among the most beloved films of all time, Jurassic Park, like many genre franchises, has struggled to recreate its magic. Prior to 1997, Steven Spielberg maintained a no-sequel philosophy to directing. Sure, as a producer, he'd overseen the continuation of films into franchises for movies like Gremlins and Back to the Future, but Spielberg famously refused to take the director's chair on his own box office hits like E.T. and Jaws. Yes, Spielberg had, at that point, directed all three of the Indiana Jones films, but he rightly imagined these movies as serials, not sequels. But after the incredible success of Jurassic Park, Spielberg was eager to break his own rule. Crichton's sequel novel, The Lost World, was published to huge sales and mixed reviews in 1995. With more source material, a bigger budget, and Spielberg back at the helm, The Lost World was rife with potential. The premise was simple enough. Eccentric billionaire John Hammond, the father of Jurassic Park, has hired a team of experts to visit Site B on Isla Sorna a small island off the coast of Costa Rica where the genetic tampering that yielded the dinosaurs of Jurassic Park was carried out before the animals were moved to Isla Nublar, the island on which the events of Jurassic Park take place. The board at Engine, Hammond's bioengineering company, has seized control from its founder and plans to pillage the island for its loosed assets. But Hammond hopes to atone for the lives lost to his ambition by proving to the world that Site B can and should become a protected wildlife preserve. And since Hammond has hired paleontologist Sarah Harding, 
girlfriend of chaotician Ian Malcolm, survivor of the events of Jurassic Park, Malcolm follows Hammond's team to Isla Sorna in a panic, where Injun soon arrives, gathering up dinosaurs in its foolhardy ambition to bring them stateside and open a new Jurassic Park in Southern California. In Jurassic Park, the novel, Crichton built his mass-market paperback on the scientific bedrock of chaos theory, the idea that unpredictability is inherent in a sufficiently complex system. Crichton uses chaos theory as the lens through which his characters grapple with the dangers of genetic research and scientific hubris. As the co-writer of Jurassic Park's screenplay, Crichton and David Kep bravely insist on this high-minded philosophizing, and much of Jurassic Park's first hour is dedicated to tight, snappy, yet sophisticated dialogue. In his novel The Lost World, extinction becomes the bridge concept to the same ends. But Spielberg admitted that he, quote, couldn't find a lot of story narrative in the middle part of Crichton's book. But... Crichton's setup was excellent, he said, and he certainly put us on the right road. Consequently, The Lost World not only deviates from its written source material, but from its cinematic predecessor. The sequel seems to assume the audience needs no further lecturing or character development and rushes its way into dinosaur action. The result, though not without a handful of thrills and new ideas, fails to shine, and it's not exactly obvious why, The movie is a tad bloated, it's cast crowded, some of the performances are wooden, and there is a truly ridiculous scene of a young girl battling a velociraptor with the power of gymnastics. But Jeff Goldblum is predictably solid, and his Ian Malcolm character feels sufficiently familiar and lived in. Spielberg delivers on action beats, and a divisive third act involving a Tyrannosaurus loose in San Diego feels tacked on, but undeniably exciting. But in the end, the sense of wonder and anticipation has been drained from Jurassic Park, and familiarity was not to blame. The peril is rushed, and the lost world relies on the original movie for conceptual depth, putting all its eggs in the basket of excess. More dinosaurs, more action, more danger. And with no room to breathe, these blockbuster thrills never amount to the sum of their parts. For all its multi-million dollar VFX spectacle and Jeff Goldblum charisma, The Lost World isn't very good. But it could have been worse. How much worse? Just ask Jurassic Park 3. Jurassic Park 3 notoriously ranks among movies like The Phantom Menace and Rocky V for being one of the worst sequels ever made, and it got off to a bad start. Crichton had originally agreed to supply a script for the third installment in the Jurassic Park franchise, but left before Universal hired Joe Johnston, director of Honey, I Shrunk the Kids and Jumanji, to helm the project. Fantastically out of ideas, Spielberg originally pitched Jurassic Park 3 as an Alan Grant Robinson Crusoe movie in which Sam Neill's character from the original film had snuck his way onto the island and was, I kid you not, living in a tree amongst the dinosaurs. Jurassic Park 3 went through multiple pitches, iterations, and rewrites before the script was settled, but whatever the narrative conceit, Director Joe Johnston insisted the Tyrannosaurus Rex, whom he and Spielberg both felt was overused in the previous film, be retired by something bigger and more exciting. 
Johnston liked the look of Baryonyx, a crocodile-like theropod from the early Cretaceous, but wanted to go bigger, choosing instead its cousin, Spinosaurus, perhaps the largest carnivore ever. Of course, Spinosaurus actually lived mostly in water and ate mostly fish, but Johnston invoked his creative liberties and Spinosaurus became the lumbering terrestrial villain of Jurassic Park 3, a not-so-subtle scene in which the Spinosaurus makes quick work of the only T-Rex we meet in the film was met with boos from the audience as I sat through Jurassic Park 3's miserable 92-minute runtime in the summer of 2001. If the Lost World was rushed, Jurassic Park 3 is a sloppy abbreviation of being rushed. The premise is thin, the characters flat and unbelievable, And the first big instance of dinosaur peril comes in before the half-hour mark. Like a Friday the 13th movie, Jurassic Park 3 only cares about putting its one-dimensional cast in jeopardy, assuming the only thing it has to offer is dinosaur action on Dinosaur Island, and thus becoming a sad, self-fulfilling prophecy. The score is forgettable. The editing is choppy the cinematography uninspired, the twists laughable, and even Jurassic Park's industry-changing visual effects have somehow devolved to -to direct-to-video standards. Despite the biggest budget in the series at the time, Jurassic Park 3 grossed less than either of its predecessors, and with vicious reviews and overwhelming disappointment from fans, the franchise entered its long hibernation during which an anticipated fourth film stalled in development hell for years. From 2001 to 2013, Jurassic Park 4 went through innumerable concepts, stories, scripts, and directors. One script by John Sayles, writer of B-movie fare like Piranha, Alligator, and The Howling, eventually leaked online, revealing just how deep into the weeds the project had ventured. In Sale's leaked draft, John Hammond sends a mercenary to Isla Nublar to retrieve the Dennis Nedry Barbasol can lost somewhere on the island back in the first film. Across his journey, the hired gun winds up in a medieval castle in the Swiss Alps where the new owners of Isla Nublar are working on a hybrid dinosaur cobbled together using human, canine, and dino DNA. The mercenary is then rehired by the Swiss scientists to train genetic hybrids in armored suits and then sent to Tangier to rescue a 10-year-old girl from terrorists. I am not making this up. You can read the script online and behold its terrifying and gratefully abandoned biotech dinoman concept art. There would be several more drafts and hired hands on Jurassic Park 4 before Colin Trevorrow was hired in 2013, more than a decade after Jurassic Park 4 first entered pre-production. It was Brad Bird, director of films like The Iron Giant and The Incredibles, who brought Trevorrow to the attention of producer Kathleen Kennedy, who was impressed by Trevorrow's indie debut, Safety Not Guaranteed. Trevorrow signed up without reading the still-in-process screenplay, but by the time the script was in front of him, he was having second thoughts, saying, and I quote, If I direct this screenplay, it's going to be a bad movie. I'm going to do a bad job because I just don't get it. Universal agreed to let Trevorrow and his writing partner, Derek Connolly, crank out their own draft as long as they preserved three ideas Steven Spielberg insisted survive the movie's reimagining an open and fully functioning dinosaur theme park, 
a human who has a relationship with trained raptors, and an antagonist dinosaur that escapes. Jurassic World was released June 12, 2015, 14 years after Jurassic Park 3 and nearly two decades after the original Jurassic Park. During that time, the misfires of both The Lost World and Jurassic Park 3 had been mostly swallowed up in the shadow of Jurassic Park's greatness, and pop culture had nurtured and developed the ongoing generational affection for Jurassic Park to the degree that Jurassic World arrived at exactly the right time and place, wowing summer movie-going audiences and becoming the highest-grossing film in the franchise and eventually reaching third among the highest-grossing films of all time. Jurassic World is smart blockbuster entertainment, establishing itself not solely on the promise of dino carnage, but on meta-themes of, yes, scientific overextension, but also corporate politics and greed. The self-commentating meta-movie is a difficult concept to pull off. Joe Dante accomplished this brilliantly with his outrageous black comedy, Gremlins 2, during which the film's manic self-awareness becomes an increasingly outrageous satire of itself and of sequels in general. But Jurassic World tastefully opts for clever subtlety by both critiquing and justifying its own existence, often in the same breath. One scene near the movie's opening features a Jurassic World technician played by Jake Johnson admiring the original park for its purity. They didn't need these genetic hybrids, he says, just real dinosaurs. Dr. Henry Wu, the only returning character from the original film, justifies the creation of the movie's menacing Indominus Rex by reminding his boss of a memo that insisted on something bigger, scarier, cooler. The movie spends most of Act One fessing up to its own corporate origins before winning the audience over with sheer spectacle, becoming not only a commentary on studio franchise sequels, but somehow accomplishing the impossible by also becoming a really good movie. For the first time since the first movie, the characters feel real and they have real chemistry. Like Jurassic Park, Jurassic World is not a psychological deep dive of character drama, but the audience's investment hinges on characters that we like and believe. Chris Pratt's Owen Grady and Bryce Dallas Howard's Claire Deering lead a cast of warm, funny, interesting characters, with Irfan Khan replacing John Hammond as the head of InGen, and Ty Simpkins and Nick Robinson acting as stand-ins for the child characters Lex and Tim. But the true genius of Trevorrow's Jurassic World is in its embracing and emphasizing one fundamental dimension of Jurassic Park missing from its other sequels, wonder. The previous Jurassic sequels assume that since the curtain has been pulled back, the audience no longer has the capacity to be wowed by dinosaurs, that we can only tolerate them as props for action beats. But Jurassic World recaptures the magic of childlike Spielbergian wonder by giving the audience what it so badly wanted to see all along, even if we didn't realize it. Not people running from bloodthirsty monsters, but a world in which Hammond's dream of living biological attractions so astounding that they capture the imagination of the entire planet has finally come to fruition. Trevorrow avoids cheap sentimentality by offsetting the magic of the open and functional park with his cynical take on corporate insincerity 
and he speaks for both the audience and the studio executives through the mouth of Owen Grady, who says, It's probably easier to pretend these animals are just numbers on a spreadsheet, but they're not. They're alive. Sure, the Jurassic Park IP may be controlled by corporate interests and brand management, but the magic is undeniable. Jurassic World paces itself in keeping with the better parts of its legacy, opting to walk the audience slowly into a sense of safety and awe, admiring the majesty of these animals behind the glass and fences of the park's protection, much like Alan Grant and Ellie Sattler, teary-eyed in the presence of a gentle Brachiosaurus. Jurassic Park opted for surprise reveals of its glorious herbivores, a gentle sauropod, a sick and tranquilized triceratops, a herd of parasaurolophuses in the distance, mesmerizing the audience with groundbreaking special effects and stunning masters and close-ups, animals that move and breathe and live on screen. But for an hour of the movie's runtime, Jurassic Park escalates the dread of its threatening predators without actually showing them at all. And for each villainous dinosaur, the movie invests in foreshadowing and anticipation before putting its developed characters in any real danger. There are Dilophosauruses who are frustratingly out of sight during the park tour. A Tyrannosaur, similarly, won't emerge from hiding even to feed on a shackled goat. And, of course, the Velociraptors everyone has been talking about since the movie began. The film opens with a raptor incident. We don't see the raptor. Alan Grant describes the animal in detail. We only see its skeleton. The park visitors learn raptors are being bred on the island. We only see a harmless hatchling. Robert Muldoon, the park's game warden, warns the audience about the raptors. We hear them eat a steer, but we can't see them. And then, an hour and 44 minutes into the movie, the first raptor finally appears on camera. And yet... Ask any fan of the movie, and they'll tell you the raptors are the stars of Jurassic Park. These are the rules of cinematic foreplay. Trevorrow doesn't have the audacity to assume he can hide his dinosaurs in all the same way Spielberg did in 1993, but he does believe that scarcity creates desire, and the film's last big dinosaur payoff becomes the first time the audience sees their beloved Tyrannosaurus on screen in all her glory, where, as was the case in the original film, she becomes our lead character's unwitting savior. Jurassic World doesn't retrofit the franchise for indie drama or art house sensibility, nor does it reduce itself to the vapid schlock of Jurassic Park 3. Instead, the film embraces its Spielbergian action-adventure legacy with just the right amount of humanity meets hyper-reality. And the end result is as exhilarating as it is satisfying, heightened in no small way by Michael Giacchino's gorgeous score. Giacchino has become the new John Williams, and his use of unashamedly melodic new themes would be enough before he calls on Williams' classic score with just the right amount of restraint to take us backward and forward in time in one fell swoop. Jurassic World was a hit, revitalizing the franchise, dominating the box office, and introducing a new generation to the joys of Jurassic Park. So, sequels were inevitable. But could they break the Jurassic Park sequel curse? 
Trevorrow had already spoken with Universal about his desire to create something, quote, less arbitrary and episodic that could possibly arc into a series that would feel like a complete story, end quote. And the studio had long foreshadowed a new trilogy of films building off their own unique locomotion. Trevorrow took a page from Spielberg's playbook, taking a producer role on the Jurassic World sequel, again writing the screenplay with Derek Connolly, with Spielberg having final approval. J.A. Bayona was hired to direct after Trevorrow was impressed by Bayona's horror film, The Orphanage. Attempting what had never been done before, a good Jurassic sequel, Trevorrow revisited the original Crichton novels and borrowed ideas, like Isla Nublar being a volcano that appeared on the page, but not the screen. He'd been inspired by a line from the original film to reach for the implications of Jurassic Park's world of genetic research as a Pandora's box. Dinosaurs and man, two species separated by 65 million years of evolution, have suddenly been thrown back into the mix together. How can we possibly have the slightest idea of what to expect? Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom opened, predictably, to big box office results, but, disappointingly, to bad reviews. It's not that surprising. While the first two acts of Fallen Kingdom act as a rehash of the lost world, altruists venture to Dinosaur Island to save them, corporations simultaneously sends in mercenaries to steal the dinosaurs and bring them stateside in order to exploit them for financial gain, the third act of Fallen Kingdom is a shocking deviation from franchise formula, becoming something like a haunted house monster movie. Despite the popular consensus that Fallen Kingdom is a mess, I admire its ingenuity. The cinematography is gorgeous, the direction is assured, and once again, Michael Giacchino's score is magnificent. There are times when Fallen Kingdom cannot resist the gravitational pull of dino action over actual development and narrative, but the characters are still interesting and likable, the big dinosaur moments beautifully staged, and, for me, the surprise twist with an evil auction of dinosaurs in a secret mansion thing really works. And sure, there are some questionable decisions, one moment when the film's villainous Indoraptor smiles like a cartoon character is truly baffling. But, thanks to J.A. Bayona's confident direction and Oscar Farah's brilliant cinematography, the movie is well-paced and visually striking, and it at least has the courage to destroy Dinosaur Island, literally, and take some big risks. The film concludes with dinosaurs set loose amongst humans, running wild in the wilderness, the suburbs, shipped overseas, moving at will through the sea and sky. So, where do you go from there? Jurassic World Dominion doesn't open with a self-contained prologue. In Jurassic Park, there's the incident with the off-screen velociraptor that attacks and kills a park handler during the process of being loaded into its enclosure. The Lost World has a little girl being attacked by Compsognathus. Jurassic Park 3 has... <sighs> parasailing? Jurassic World has a brief and mysterious hatching scene. And Fallen Kingdom, a thrilling sequence involving a trip back to the Fallen Park to retrieve a DNA sample. In Dominion, we open in the Bering Sea, where the now-familiar Mosasaurus attacks a crabbing boat before we're catapulted into a now-this-news report. 
wherein a journalist catches the audience up with the last four years of exposition, and we learn what we already knew. Dinosaurs are loose in the world. Why Trevorrow preferred the vehicle of a fictional now-this-news report over a simple montage or a self-contained prologue that would have achieved the same ends by arguably more cinematic means is a mystery to me. But Dominion's ultimate avalanche of exposition is a heavy burden for the audience to carry only minutes into the film. From there, we cut to Claire Deering, dinosaur activist, as she and a couple of leftover Fallen Kingdom characters rescue a baby Nasutoceratops from an illegal breeding facility. Isn't this scene alone enough to bring the audience into the world of human-dinosaur coexistence? By eliminating the Now This News segment, the Mosasaurus scene could have had more room to breathe, to build anticipation and dread, maybe even homage Godzilla or Jaws, before we cut to our familiar characters and gradually bring the audience into their evolving arcs by showing rather than telling. From here... The movie begins to pace itself, stepping into Owen and Claire's world as they act as surrogate parents to Maisie Lockwood, a human clone around whom a worldwide manhunt has raged for the last few years. The velociraptor, Blue, has apparently followed Owen from California to Nevada, though whether or not Owen knew this or is surprised to eventually see Blue is sort of unclear. At any rate, the movie quickly arms Chekhov's gun, Maisie is kidnapped by Biosyn, the evil bioengineering racket led by Lewis Dodgson, who first appeared in Jurassic Park, hiring Dennis Nedry to steal viable dinosaur embryos from Engine. Dodgson is now played by Campbell Scott, as the original actor, Cameron Thor, is currently serving jail time on sexual assault charges. Here, Dominion makes two interesting pivots. First, we learn that a plague of genetically engineered locusts are ravaging global food supplies. Then, we are reintroduced to Dr. Ellie Sattler and Dr. Alan Grant from the original film. The returning cast members aren't the surprise. It's how we get to them. Dr. Sattler, in her study of the locusts' effect on farms and ecosystems, seeks out her old colleague and ex-lover, Alan Grant, Ellie suspects Biosyn is responsible for the locusts, but now divorced and with limited connections and few trustworthy friends, she needs Alan's help and credibility. Why an aging paleontologist is best suited for stealing DNA samples from mutant grasshoppers isn't exactly clear, but whatever. Maybe it's because Grant has been vocal in his condemnation of genetic tampering, and maybe in Dominion's world, people listen to Alan Grant? I don't know. Trevorrow might have come up with some overt dinosaur way to get these two beloved characters back into the line of dinosaur fire, but this route, though confusing, seems more credible. Midway, the movie relocates to Malta and skims the surface of an underground dinosaur black market. One scene takes us into an obvious Moss Eisley Cantina-inspired underworld where caged dinosaurs are bought and sold, kept as pets, and chained dinosaurs are forced into cockfights for gambling spectators. All that is insinuated by this world and the incredible detail of its set design becomes distracting with unexplored potential. I wanted the movie to stop there, stay there, and explore every inch of that world. Instead, 
Malta is a transition moment in Trevorrow's ambition to suddenly transform Jurassic World into an international espionage thriller, if not for a moment. But before we can lament the untapped possibilities of Malta's dinosaur black market, we're treated to what is arguably one of the greatest staged and edited action sequences in the entire franchise. Owen and Claire are made to flee a pack of trained atrociraptors through the crowded streets of Malta, culminating in a car and motorcycle chase across rooftops and through alleyways with bone-rattling sound effects and perfectly choreographed frenetic action that is absolutely scintillating to behold. The sequence lasts for what feels like 15 minutes without letting up, and Trevorrow loads the chase with explosive spectacle and surprise jump moments, ratcheting up the tension until it explodes. And then we're somehow back to Dinosaur Island. Sort of, anyway. Isla Nublar may be gone, but Biosyn has created a biological reserve for its relocated dinosaurs, at the center of which sits a sophisticated command compound. And when everything predictably goes to hell and the villains of Biosyn lose control, Dominion descends disappointingly into familiar franchise territory. Ever since The Lost World, the studio and its hired filmmakers seem to assume that what the audience really wants is more dinosaurs, loads of them. And Dominion, like most of the Jurassic sequels, takes a maximalist approach to dinosaur variety, with its characters often naming and describing new animals for the audience with lines like, Giganotosaurus, the biggest carnivore the world has ever seen, and... Quetzalcoatlus, late Cretaceous, should have stayed there. Both lines rattled off, laughably, in moments of life-threatening crisis. The original Jurassic Park is 127 minutes long. Of those two-plus hours, only 15 minutes actually include dinosaur footage. And of those 15 minutes, only six minutes were of CG dinosaurs. Only seven species appear in the film, most of them very briefly. Our first grand dinosaur reveal is of a Brachiosaurus, and at the end of the scene, we see a herd of Parasaurolophuses in the distance. There's a sick and mostly immobile Triceratops, a herd of stampeding Gallimimus, and a brief but unforgettable encounter with a Dilophosaurus, which Jurassic Park reimagines as a frilled, venomous creature. The actual Dilophosaurus was neither. But the real dinosaur stars of Jurassic Park are the Tyrannosaurus rex and three velociraptors who, together, occupy only a fraction of that 15 minutes of dinosaur screen time. And yet, to date, I have never heard a single person complain that there are not enough dinosaurs in Jurassic Park. Why? Well, partly because movie-going sensibilities and patience were much different in 1993, and partly because Spielberg understands the rules of cinematic foreplay, and he rewards the audience for their patience with big, albeit brief, thrills that satisfy our anticipation. It seems as if there are no tasteful methods for cramming increasingly diverse dinosaur species into these movies in ways that do not feel cheap or contrived. And yet, audiences do want to see more dinosaurs. At least they think they do. But I believe a fantastic story and a few well-crafted thrills properly paced and placed will win out over hordes of CG reptiles any day. 
The original Jurassic World compromises by offering the audience dinosaur variety through beautiful montages of the functioning park, showing us both new animals and letting us see what it might be like to visit Jurassic World and take a jeep ride alongside a herd of Gallimimus or a kayak tour just feet from grazing stegosaurs. But by the time we get to Fallen Kingdom, there are literally dozens of stampeding dinosaurs crowding the frame at a time. Dominion splits the difference, creating a few believable and exciting excuses to showcase new species like that black market in Malta, and a few scenes that clearly only exist to put our heroes in danger of some new creature that comes and goes with no real consequence. But that will probably make a great action figure for my kids. But of all the new dinosaurs offered up on Dominion's buffet table, its ostensible antagonist, Giganotosaurus, also pronounced Giganotosaurus, is undoubtedly the most lackluster in the franchise. In both of the previous Jurassic World movies, Trevorrow dedicates plotting, foreshadowing, and screen time to the development of the Indominus Rex and the Indoraptor, respectively, going as far as to imbue his genetic monsters with motivation and conflict and to teasing out their inevitable rampage of destruction by obscuring them from the audience, hiding them in the frame, making us want to see them but giving us only a glimpse a la Alien or Jaws. Indominus Rex opens Jurassic World and is the mechanism that sets the events of the movie in motion. The same is true of Fallen Kingdom's Indoraptor. But by the time we're introduced to Giganotosaurus by way of exposition, we're well into the movie's runtime, and we abruptly cut to a full reveal of the animal in broad daylight and in the least threatening position. It's lying on the forest floor, sleeping. Though fantastic on screen as an enormous animatronic, or else realized with masterful CGI, Giganotosaurus never earns the menace of its predecessors because it seems rushed into the movie, and the movie keeps trying to convince the audience just how terrifying it should be by having the characters tell us, too little, too late. In the end... Our big bad dinosaur antagonist is in three scenes. It has a minor skirmish with the T-Rex over food before attempting to devour our fully assembled cast outside a biosyn compound. And then finally, it lumbers into the formulaic finale we've come to expect. A bad dinosaur gets inside and is about to eat the stars before a familiar dinosaur appears to save them, something we've seen three times already in the original movie and the first two Jurassic Worlds. Here... The Therizinosaurus reappears as if it has somehow become an audience favorite after only a single bizarre scene in which it slaps a deer with its enormous claws and yells at some water. And what is intended as an epic money shot of this strange new dinosaur roaring alongside the beloved Tyrannosaurus as a bolt of lightning erupts across the night sky looks awesome but feels unsatisfying and anticlimactic. It's hard to tell exactly what isn't working in Dominion, but it's probably a tad bloated and maybe a bit scatterbrained, which is strange because Dominion is, I think, undeniably entertaining from start to finish. It's not any more crowded or overextended than other effective franchise finales like Avengers Endgame. And while Dominion offers at least one satisfying full circle, a scene in which Lewis Dodgson meets the same fate as Dennis Nedry, 
the movie seems to go for big closure while delivering endings that feel hurried and tacked on. Jurassic World, on the other hand, concludes perfectly. As was the case in Jurassic Park, our heroes have barely escaped the disaster with their lives. Michael Giacchino scores the scene with emotional John Williams-esque sentimentality, bringing us down from the high of dinosaur carnage. And Claire asks Owen what happens next. Owen suggests they should stick together for survival. Giacchino's new Jurassic World theme crescendos in triumphant glory as the camera moves up the devastated island at sunrise and the Tyrannosaur steps out over her kingdom and roars. Credits. It was an ending that had moviegoers high-fiving their way out of the theater. But in Dominion, what is being billed as the last entry in the Jurassic saga, Trevorrow strangely chooses to button things up identically to Fallen Kingdom, A scientist monologues about a world of human-dinosaur coexistence, becoming a voiceover that ornaments another montage of dinosaurs loose in the modern world as Giacchino ramps things up with banging drums and minor chord drama. The last shot is of a Ceratopsian dinosaur silhouette walking with elephants along the Serengeti? What? That's it? With so crowded a cast... Our franchise heroes seem underserved. Chris Pratt spends almost the entire movie running around with a distraught look on his face and is given little room for the lovable, wisecracking, Han Solo-esque heroics we've come to expect. Bryce Dallas Howard is predictably lovable and sincere, continuing her arc from soulless executive to animal rights activist. But the movie has so much to do that as soon as it gets her in motion, there's no new way to develop her character. Henry Wu is back, but Trevorrow suddenly abandons Wu's interesting evolution into evil mad scientist in favor of a sympathetic turn that sends him out on a flimsy high note. Alan Grant, though effortlessly re-embodied by Sam Neill, is mostly sad, lonely, and lacking the confidence of his 1993 self. But the real star of Dominion is Jeff Goldblum as Ian Malcolm, who delights every moment of screen time and earns all the movie's biggest laughs. Even so, it doesn't seem like any of that is what has really perturbed angry critics and disappointed fans who seem more unsatisfied with the locust subplot, the idea of a human clone, and the presumed silliness of some of Dominion's premises. And though I may be in the minority... I think Trevorrow's more unconventional ideas make the most sense for Jurassic World. In the end, Jurassic Park, since Michael Crichton made it up, has been about science and capitalism. Trevorrow gets this more than the internet mob bemoaning in YouTube comments, but my favorite dinosaur wasn't in it, or not enough dino action. As a scientist, Crichton was a cynic, if not an alarmist, And his work consistently depicted the far-reaching dangers of scientific hubris. If he were alive today, he might write a novel very much like Dominion. Don't believe me? Read his novel entitled Next, a delightfully bonkers descent into genetic madness featuring human-animal hybrids, corporate corruption, biotech bounty hunters, and a half-boy, half-chimpanzee named Dave. But would Next make a good movie. I don't know. Like most novel-to-film adaptations, Jurassic Park was massively pared down and repurposed for the screen, 
and maybe some of Crichton's influence is best left in his bibliography, or maybe, if Trevorrow had played it safe, we'd just be complaining about that too. Hey, thanks for listening to You Hate Movies. What do you think about the Jurassic Park franchise, its mini-sequels, and its latest installment, Dominion? Let us know by leaving a comment on this episode at youhatemovies.com. And if you want to go even further, you can do us a couple of favors. One, leave us a glowing review on the Apple Podcast app. Two, go to patreon.com slash youhatemovies where you can give up a cup of coffee every month and get bonus episodes of You Hate Movies instead, which I would argue probably energize you even more than that, you know, uh, abandoned cup of coffee. And you can follow us on all the social media outlets, all at You Hate Movies. Stay tuned for the second and third installments in our trilogy of Jurassic World deep dive episodes, in which we will argue about Jurassic World Dominion and then rank the franchise from best to worst. 